Hey, good morning. Uh, if you're here for the first time, we want to say welcome, and uh, we want to get to know you. And so one way we can get to know you is by having you fill out one of our Connect cards. Uh, they're on all the communion stations around the room, so you can... Take, uh, take a Connect card, put pen to paper, drop it in one of the offering boxes that are around the room on the communion stations, or you can download our app, Restoration Church Wood Forest. Go down, hit the Connect button, and you can connect with us electronically. It'll come straight to us. Or even better, just pull out your phone real quick, hit your camera, and hit the QR code that says Connect in front of you, and you can connect with us in that way, uh, we're trying to make it as easy for you as possible because we want to know you. We want to get to know you. We want you to get to know us. We're, we're, we're kind of taking the first step of starting this relationship. And so let's date, all right? So uh, fill that out. A little bit of information uh, from you will give us the opportunity to get back to you in the form of a newsletter, a phone call, just to invite you to be a part of what's going on at Restoration. So this week, uh, this is known as Holy Week. And so today's Palm Sunday, which we remember the day that Jesus comes into Jerusalem and within a week, he's gonna be dead. He, he will die brutally on a cross. And then next Sunday, this time, we'll be celebrating that he was no longer in the tomb because he rose from the dead. That is a central tenet of our faith. And so, uh, so this next week is full of that. Uh, three things that are happening, or actually two things are happening. Uh, starting on Friday, we will have a journey to the cross here. It's a come and go event from 10 to 7 p.m. And you will have the opportunity to walk through the stations of the cross, kind of a journey to the cross. It'll start with Genesis in the beginning and, and walk you all the way through when Jesus is laid to rest in the tomb and the tomb is shut and it will prepare you for uh, Easter when he is raised from the dead. And so uh, it's an experiential thing. It'll probably take you about an hour to walk through. It, uh, there will be scripture you can read. Uh, you'll click some QR codes and there'll be some videos you can watch. And all of it is an opportunity for you to experience really this walk to the cross with Jesus. So it's come and go, 10 to 7. Come, invite a friend. Uh, it is going to be a little more uh, introspective. And so be prepared for that. Uh, but I think it'll be a great time. And then Saturday at 5.30 and three services on Sunday, identical four services for Easter. Um, I told you this last week, but would love for many of you to come on Saturday night to make room. Uh, you know, here we are on Sunday morning, the week before Easter, and we're pretty much full. And so we expect 9.45 to be overflowing with people. Um, and so 9.45 and 11.30 will be pretty full. So if you could go to, go to Saturday night, go to uh, Sunday morning at eight uh, to make room for those who maybe will never be in church another time this year. Um, and your passport to come to one of those services is to bring somebody with you, all right? So don't grab your spouse and go, hey, I brought her with me, all right? Um, it's good that you did. Uh, by the way, just real quickly, uh, last week, I used this phrase over and over again, if God's not dead, you're not done. Do you guys remember that? So I, I failed to attribute that. And so uh, after the service, uh, somebody had quoted me as saying it. I did not say that. That's from a song by Elevation Church called My Testimony. Um, and it says in the bridge, if God's not dead, you're not done. Uh, you probably, if you listen to Air One, you heard it because they play it every 15 minutes. And so, uh, but, but, but that phrase really impacted me. And so I just want to make sure if anybody thought, wow, that's really catchy. Well, it is, but I didn't originally say it. All right, so Revelation chapter 10, go ahead and turn there. And um, 
We're in the middle of God's final judgment. And so I wanna just give you just a little bit of a sweep of the last few chapters as we move forward this morning because it's gonna be important to the passage today. So Revelation chapter five, if you remember, uh, John is in the throne room of heaven and it says that God's sitting on his throne and he's got this scroll in his right hand. It's sealed seven times so no one can open it. And remember, an angel calls out who's worthy to open, uh, break the seals, open the scrolls. No one was found to be worthy. John is distraught because remember, he's on the Isle of Patmos. He's a prisoner. He wants to be set free. He wants Jesus to come back and vindicate him. No one's worthy to break the seal, open the scroll. Remember we said that the scroll is the deed entitled to earth, which now God, uh, he's written down how he's going to execute his take back plan. This is final judgment, final salvation, final restoration of the world that's written in the scroll, sealed up. And then here comes the lamb-like lion, the lion-like lamb who is Jesus. All right, you've been listening. Good. Uh, Jesus, he comes on the scene and he is deemed worthy to break the seals, open the scroll. Man, all of heaven rejoices. And then in chapter six, he starts breaking open the seals and we see these seal judgments. There are six of them that we see in chapter six. In chapter seven, there is this pause. And during this pause, 144,000 completed Jews, meaning those Jews who are now becoming followers of Jesus, it's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes are sealed on their forehead. They're protected by God so they can't be killed by the coming judgment. In fact, now they are gonna be God's uh, representatives or ambassadors in the world to bring more to faith during a time when God is executing judgment. What does that tell us? That even in the middle of judgment, God in his mercy is still uh, putting out the feelers, sending out the message, wanting more to come to faith in him before the very end. Again, if you're not dead, God's not done. And, and, and we've said this over the last few weeks. If you uh, don't view God's judgment through the lens of God's mercy, then you miss it. Right, because God, while he is executing judgment, we still see over and over, there are these pauses where he's like, hey, it's not too late. Well, so he moves on into chapter eight. The seventh seal is broken. With the seventh seal, seven angels, seven trumpets, and now we know them as the trumpet judgments. And, and over the last couple of weeks, we've seen in Revelation chapter eight and chapter nine, we see these six trumpet judgments, and man, it's breaking loose, and it says that a third of the earth is scorched, a third of the population dies. It's, it's just really brutal. And then you remember Revelation 9 last week, these freaky locusts with faces like men and uh, teeth like lions come out, and, and they have these tails like scorpions, and, and God gives them permission to torment but not kill. Remember that? And what was the point of that? It all started when God gave the key to the abyss to who? Satan. And if you remember, that was our, our, our whole uh, time together last week was unpacking the idea that the enemy actually only has the power that God gives him. That God is actually over all things, including evil. That it is not God and Satan trying to figure out how's this all gonna work out, no. God is over all things, including evil. He has the final word on all things. And so the enemy only has the power 
that God gives him. And remember, we said, if the enemy only has the power that God gives him, and in Jesus, I've been given the spirit of the living God on the inside of me. Romans 8 says that I've received the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That means I have resurrection power flowing through my veins. Is that a lot of power? Yeah, it's a lot of power, y'all. And it says that I have that same power coursing through my veins. So if the enemy only has the power that God gives him, then actually the enemy only has the power that I as a follower of Jesus give him. That's a no excuses life, y'all. The angel's propaganda who convinces you that you're not enough, who convinces you that you don't have what it takes was actually defeated at the cross, which means he's got nothing but talk. And so the minute that you believe that and begin to live into that, it changes the way you live. I'd encourage you, if you uh, missed the message last week, I believe that there's no more important message than this. Revelation chapter nine, if you're not dead, he's not done. And he's got things that he wants to do. And, and the enemy actually has nothing on you. Amen. Believe it and live it. It will change the way you live. So as we read through the passage today, um, I was reminded immediately of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. All right, so we're getting here to chapter 10, and there's again a pause. In chapter 7, right before the seventh seal, there was a pause where the 144,000 are sealed. And now, right here in chapter 10, again, before the seventh trumpet blast, there's a rhythm to how this is all being played out. The beginning of chapter 10, another pause. But it reminded me of this. Um, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 2. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Get this. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. What? Same smell, two different, two different things, Right? So what this says this morning, that the day that you received Jesus and, and as you live into him and as you grow and, and, and receive everything that he wants to offer you, it says to some, the aroma that you emit, the product of your life is life to those who are in your presence. It's a life-giving presence. Meaning uh, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, the characteristics that the Spirit brings on your life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So that's not an exhaustive list, but it's a pretty good one to start with, right? So imagine that all of those things are flowing out of your life. Well, it says that the aroma of Christ, what you're emitting because you've received what? The DNA of Jesus, we say it every week, this is part of the DNA of Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, blah, 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 right? All of those things. I didn't mean to say blah, 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 but you know what I mean. <laughs> All these things are emanating from your life. And so it says to some, it's life, which means to some, it is attractive. To some, because the spirit is drawing them, it's like, ooh, I want some more of that. Oh, that is what I've been longing for. I've been longing for love. It's why the woman at the well, she was so changed by Jesus because she had never received that unconditional love before, right? It's like, woo! The woman in John 8 caught in adultery. She had never been defended like that before. She had never received the peace of God. And Jesus showed her what peace looks like. You don't have to be anxious anymore. Be at peace. 
go and sin no more. So we see it throughout the Gospels. So the summit brings life. But then it says the summit brings death. What? What does that mean? Where's what I want you to know? People who are not ready to follow Jesus, people who are not ready to surrender their life fully, the way of Jesus seems like the way of death because it's an indictment on their life. It's an indictment on the fact that I got my stuff and Jesus is trying to get in on my life. He's trying to get in on the things that I have, am holding dear, the things that I think that are important. And when Jesus comes on the scene, see, you can't follow Jesus and not live in transformation. And we'll see that this morning. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so the whole idea is a transformed life. And so the reason that Paul is saying this, he's saying, hey, listen, to some, you will live as the aroma of Christ and it'll make people mad. I've experienced that. So since the beginning of the year, um, I've had the opportunity to lead uh, four different people to Jesus in my office. And it's been incredible. And so if you've never led somebody to Jesus, um, number one, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's time, all right? So, so be in pursuit of that. There's nothing better. There's nothing more exhilarating. And the other thing is, I really didn't have to do anything. You know, I, I'm, they, they show up and they're hungry and ready. I shared the simple gospel, uh, you know, the bridge illustration on a piece of paper. And, and they're like, that's what I want. Oh, awesome. You've been here for 45 seconds, right? They receive Jesus right there on the spot and their life is transformed, but it's not me. I don't convince people into the kingdom. I don't argue people into the kingdom. In fact, if I'm in a conversation with somebody and, and they say, well, I don't believe that. I say, well, do you believe the Bible is 100% true? Nope. All right, you wanna talk about something else? Because if we're not arguing from the same platform, if we're not talking from the same platform, I'm not gonna argue somebody into the kingdom or convince them that Jesus is a better way. Only the Spirit does that. I don't need to do that. And so I'm released that I just tell the truth. And if people receive it, great. If they don't, I'm like, okay. It's to your detriment, but whatever. So I've had these great experiences, but last month, I had, a, I had just the opposite experience. Somebody that called themselves a follower of Jesus was, was doing something that was really outside of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I asked for a conversation. And I was blasted. I mean, completely turned upside down. You know why? Because the aroma of Christ in that moment was death because it was gonna require something that they were unwilling to give up. And it never came to a conversation even. It came to a, oh, judgmental. You're so judgmental. You're so critical. You're just, you're just trying to censor me. Uh, oh, oh, okay, I just wanted to see if you wanted to get together. Got it. Because you see, here's the truth of the matter in our culture today. If you are the aroma of Christ to some, it is gonna be life to a lot of people, man. People are looking for love and peace and hope right now. They're desirant of that in their life. Desirous, not desirant, desirous. But for a lot of people, don't tell me how to live my life. Sounds good. So that's what we're gonna see this morning. Jesus will always be an indictment on darkness because he's light. And when people aren't ready to surrender everything to Jesus, his way will feel like death to them. 
You've probably experienced it. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe already in your life um, or, or as you've been sitting here that this is like, ooh, where are you going with this? Don't tread on me. I want you to know, I'm not here to judge you. But the Spirit may draw you this morning, may show you that there's a better way. So let's look at this, uh, Revelation chapter 10, 11 verses, starting with verse one. It says, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. So first of all, he says, then I saw, um, he uses this a lot in the book of Revelation. When he says, then I saw, it's usually a change of scene. So we've been going on through these six trumpet blasts and with every trumpet blast, something really bad happens. Something catastrophic happens. And now in chapter 10, it's all of a sudden this collective breath. <sighs> then I saw, and he says, I saw another angel. Another angel, a mighty angel coming down from heaven. So we've seen angels throughout Revelation. And now this is another one. It's a big angel. He says, a mighty angel coming down from heaven. We'll see how big he is in just a second. But this image is really re reminiscent of chapter one when he sees Jesus for the first time. Do you remember it says he was in worship and all of a sudden he heard the, the voice like a sound of a trumpet blaring and he turns and he sees Jesus in, in the last half of chapter one and he describes him and he, he's big, his eyes are like fire, his hair's like wool. Uh, just this really big picture of Jesus. This is the same Jesus that, that he followed as a disciple, as a man who has now become the Savior, the King, the Lord. And so this image is reminiscent of that, but this is not Jesus. Because Jesus is not yet returning. We don't see him return until later in the book when he finally comes back to take back what is his. And so um, this, this is similar to what he talks about when he talks about Jesus, but this is not Jesus. So as he comes down from heaven that he's robed in a cloud. And so when we see clouds generally in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, uh, what's the imagery we get? We get thunder, we get lightning. It feels ominous, right? So this is a picture of judgment. As he's robed in a cloud, it's like he's descending and, and the clouds are surrounding him. Just think Mount Sinai and Exodus chapter 19 as, as Moses is about to go up and receive the Ten Commandments. And what does it say there? It says that on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud what? Trumpet blast. Trumpets are everywhere, Right? This is happening thousands of years ago. It's happening here in Revelation. And, and here's what we know. We can use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So we see these clouds that are hovering over Mount Sinai. And this is the moment when Moses will go up and receive the law of God for his people. And it happened uh, with this heavy, heavy cloud, thunder, lightning. And so we think of uh, a cloud, we think of judgment, but here's what's interesting. What else do we see? He had a rainbow over his head. A rainbow over his head. So this is an odd paradox, right? So think about, when I was talking about 2 Corinthians, we see uh, one image 
two responses. We see the aroma of Christ, and we see some think it's life, some think it's death. We see here this image uh, of an angel that is robed in a cloud, which, which is a picture of judgment, with a rainbow over his head, which is a picture of covenant. So think about the first time we see a rainbow. It's in Genesis, post-flood, that God gives them a rainbow with a promise that he'll never again destroy the earth by water. We would challenge that here in Houston, right? But we're still here. If God's not dead, he's not done, right? So um, here we see this picture of a rainbow which represents covenant. So think about this. Looking at this angel, which perspective would you see? Do you see the judgment of God, the justice of God, this ominous cloud? Is that the way you view God? Do you view him as kind of, uh, man, you're just one, one inch away from being smited by the mighty smiter? <laughs> Are you focused on the rainbow, on the promise that he's faithful no matter what? No matter what. Um, it's this same paradox that we see in Malachi chapter 3. Verses 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. Look, a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wickedest, between those who serve God and those who do not. What is the picture there? It's this, uh, again, this, this dichotomy, right? You see the two things at play, the righteous and the wicked. We see this angel full of justice, full of mercy, judgment, and covenant. So it says also that he has face like a son. So imagine the Shekinah glory of God uh, when this angel has come directly from the presence of God and his face is so bright that you couldn't look on him. Like Moses, when he'd been in the presence of God, he had to wear a veil over his face because people could not look at him because he had been in the presence in the glory of God. Legs like fiery pillars. When we think of fire in the context of Revelation, we think of death, destruction, judgment. But when I thought of it, I thought it could either be something that destroys or something that purifies. Again, it's all in the way you look at it. A dual theme. Verse two, he was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So little scroll. So what is this little scroll? Is this the same scroll from Revelation 5 that, that Jesus opened up? Or is this a different scroll? Um, scholars have a, a, a varying degree of what they believe that this scroll is. So nobody knows for sure. Um, I actually believe it's the same scroll that Jesus took from the hand of the Father, the same scroll that he broke over the seal, uh, opened the seals because it, it's open, it's laying open in the hand of the angel. So it's consistent imagery with everything that we've been reading in its context. And so the Greek word for scroll in Revelation 5 is biblion, 
And so uh, you've got the scroll, the Biblion, and we'll see again in verse 8 uh, of chapter 10, he will use that word again, Biblion, the same exact word. Here in verse 2, he diminishes it, and he uses the word uh, Biblaridion, Biblaridion, yeah, whatever. So um, it's, a, it's a smaller form of the word. It means he's diminished it somewhat, but I believe this is why he's diminished it, because we're going to see at the end of this chapter that John is going to be asked to go and take it. So it needs to be a man-sized scroll so that he can grab it. If it were a God-sized scroll, it would be impossible for him to take out of the hand of this angel. And so we'll see that as we go through the passage a little bit more. But he's got this scroll. It's, it's open and it's in his hand. And it says he's got one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. What does that mean? It means that everything is under the control of God. Everything. It means that God owns it all. Psalm 24, it says, the earth is the Lord and everything in it. So what is everything? Everything. Everything. Say it with me. Everything. What is everything? Everything. It means that everything is the Lord's. So whatever you've got in your life, it's the Lord's. Your boat, it's actually the Lord's. I'd love to go out on it sometime with you. I mean, I... I don't make a big deal about it, but I got some free time. Just call me. Um, but, but everything is the Lord's. Everything. It should change your perspective. The things that you own are actually given to you on loan by God. It's all His. Everything. And He puts one foot on the land, one foot on the sea. What does that tell you? This is a big angel, right? This is probably a little bit of a terrifying vision. That in the middle of all uh, uh, of the war and all of the destruction that he's seen, there's this pause and this giant angel robed in a cloud with a rainbow overhead comes and he's holding out something for John. He doesn't know what it is yet. But look, this would be even more ter terrifying. He gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion and when he shouted, the voice of seven thunders spoke. So the roar of a lion, terrifying, but also like the sound of seven thunders, equally terrifying, okay? This is not uh, like the rolling thunder after a thunderstorm. This is like the, the thunder that shakes your house. You know that thunder that kind of, you know, freaks you out? Yeah, that's that, times seven, Right? Just imagine rapid succession. You feel like that you're in a third world country during war, right? It's unnerving. So roaring like a lion, seven thunders. What, do, what does seven represent? It represents perfection. Thunders representing judgment. This is perfect judgment. Perfect judgment that's about to be poured out. Think about in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, this thunder is described. When Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in the battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistine and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. 
When the Lord thunders, it throws the enemy into panic. And it says, the seven thunders. Then look at verse four. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So remember, what was the number one thing that John was told at the beginning of the book? Write down everything that you see and hear. So he was tasked with that. He's been given this vision uh, of Jesus, given vision of the seven churches, given vision of the throne room, and now he's been given this vision of all of this destruction that's taking place. And now he hears something, we don't know what, but as these seven thunders happen, something has been told to him. And he's ready to write it down. And God says, uh, don't write that down. Don't write that down. In fact, seal it. It's not, it's not for anyone else to know. But we all want to know, don't we? I mean, what did he say? Here's what we know for sure. We have no idea. Why? Because God sealed it. Because God has the right to do whatever God wants to do. And it's interesting that this happens right here in chapter 10. We're seeing all of this unleashed. We're seeing really uh, hell unleashed on earth. He's released evil to turn on evil. And we're seeing this happen. And then there are seven more thunders, which complete judgment that's about to take place. He says something to John. And then he says, hey, keep that to yourself. That's just for you and me. Well, it seems to contradict Revelation 22.10. Because Revelation 22.10 says this. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. So he tells him, hey, let it all out except this. So here's what I want you to know about that. First of all, we have no idea what he said there. But two thoughts. Number one, I think what he was saying was, here's seven more things I was gonna do but I'm not gonna do them, right? My mercy, my, my complete uh, just taking over the world, it could be worse. And I've chosen not to do these seven things. Almost like kind of a little inside scoop, by the way. This is the, this is the uncut version, John. Could be worse. Mercy of God on display. But here's number two. Think about that intimate moment between John and God. He lets him into a moment and then says, hey, that's just for you and me. What would that be like? What would that be like in your relationship with Jesus? If he told you things, intimate things about your life, intimate things about your future, intimate things about your spouse, intimate things about the world that you're living in, and he says, hey, this is just for you and me. I want you and I to experience this together. Not in an extra biblical kind of way. I'm not saying that God's gonna give you a new revelation to be added onto the word. But what if he opens and gives you insight into his word in a way that you've never heard before? And he says, hey, I'm opening it for you and me because he wants relationship with you. This is not a 30,000 foot God that is raining down on you, that is sitting up on his throne just watching you run around like a chicken with your head cut off. And hey, you prayed a prayer, you'll be up here someday, but until you do, good luck. Don't we live our lives like that? That's Western Christianity in a nutshell. Pray a prayer so that when you die, you get to go to heaven. 
I mean, that's cool. That's a byproduct. But it's not the point of the gospel. You see, God wants to have these intimate moments with you. These moments in the secret place where he reveals things to you that will bring you to life so that you can receive them and go out and live the life he's called you to live. The actual gospel is that you get to join him today in what he's doing in the world. You get to live into your Ephesians 2 calling so that you can be a part of what he's doing so that we can change the world. And a byproduct is that eternity really starts today and you die, you leave this beautiful earth suit and you get to spend eternity with Jesus in a place called heaven. That's a byproduct. Don't just pray a prayer and wait to die. How jacked up is that? I mean, talk about the enemy. If, if I were the enemy, that would be a great tool. Let me dumb down the gospel so that you pray some prayer and then sit around and wait for eternity. Either bored to tears or just continue living your life going, well, I prayed the prayer, I'm good. If that's you, I would just encourage you, go read the gospels. The words of Jesus will be unnerving for you. Because what we have sold the church in America, and what Jesus said are two completely different things. In fact, you look at, you lay the words of Jesus on the American church, and it's a little scary. Mm, okay, that's another message. All right. So we think about, I mean, this is a mystery that we don't know that God says to seal it up. But uh, in Job 37.5, he says this, God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. God's ways are incredible. Even the hard things are incredible. The things that you don't wanna hear are actually incredible because he's good always, all the time, all the time. He's always good. And he does great things that are beyond our understanding. You know, if you knew everything that you could know about God, guess what? You'd drop dead, right? I mean, God is too marvelous for understanding. So here's how I know none of you know everything there is to know about God. Because you haven't dropped dead yet, right? We're waiting. I'm waiting for the day that I say something and you finally achieve that and then you just drop. I'm gonna carry you out. I don't know where that's going. All right. But it's really beyond our understanding. His goodness is beyond anything we can comprehend. Okay, verse five. Y'all are like, what is he talking about? I don't, I don't know. Then, then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by him, he lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants and prophets. So it says that the angel now raises his right hand. If you've ever been in a court of law, raise your right hand, repeat after me, what are you doing? I do solemnly swear. He's swearing by God. Now, Jesus he tells us, don't make oaths, don't swear to God. Well, he's an angel, so he gets a pass, right? He's been sent by God, and he says, listen, I swear by God 
that the mysteries of God are about to be accomplished. When that seventh trumpet blows, there will be no delay. What's he saying? The end's coming, y'all. The end is coming, it's sure. The trumpet sounds, we'll see that that seventh trumpet actually activates these seven bold judgments, the last seven judgments that happen in rapid succession, and then Jesus comes and brings final salvation, final restoration to the world, and the end will come very, very quickly. Look at what happens when the seventh trumpet sounds in Revelation 11. This is a spoiler alert, all right? So, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks. It says, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, are you ready? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. When that seventh trumpet sounds, it says the kingdom of the world has now been overtaken by the kingdom of God. So that means that every person that has prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this is when that comes to pass. When heaven literally comes to earth, when, when Jesus comes back to take that which is his. In Revelation chapter six, verse 10, remember there were those martyrs that were under the altar and they were crying out saying, when will you vindicate us, Lord? And what he's saying is right now. I will not delay. I am about to be crowned once and for all King of kings and Lord of lords. Ooh, that's good, y'all. So again, this is either very good news or very bad news. Right? I mean, it all depends on where you are with Jesus. Remember at the end of chapter 9? It says, after all of the violence, after all the bloodshed, it's said that the enemies of God shook their fist at him and continued right on doing what they're doing. The dust settled and they're like, live to fight another day. Can you relate to that? I'll just think of, I know so many people that have come right to the brink of holiness Right? Do you know those people that, that you know, I'll just use men's advance for, an, for instance. There, there are a percentage of our men that live for men's advance every year because they get warm to the campfire. And it feels so good and there's that moment. And then within days, maybe weeks, right back to the same pattern of life. And then they're longing for another event, Right? Another pick-me-up. Oh, I can't wait for that event. I'll sign up early. I'll be the first one to sign up because they're ready to get their God fix. What if the goal was transformation? What if you didn't get pumped up by a men's event? What if you didn't get pumped up by the women's Bible study? It's not that they're not important, but when they become the all-important thing that I need something external to motivate me, maybe I've missed a point. Maybe what I need is for God's kingdom to come and his will be done right here, right now, in my life. So that those things just reinforce what I'm already living. It's a different way to look at life. Somebody set an alarm and said, hey, dude, you're done. All right, almost. <laughs> almost. So again, it really all depends on your point of view. You're either under judgment or under covenant, right? 
Either you're living under the judgment of God because you don't know Jesus, or you're living under the covenant that Jesus died to give you, the new covenant of his blood. Again, two thoughts, right? That second Corinthians passage, the aroma of life or the aroma of death. Okay, we're almost done. Verse eight, then the voice I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and land. And so John is told to take this scroll from the hand of the angel. Again, the word there, the Greek word, biblion. It's the same Greek word that, that was in Revelation 5. And so same scroll, I believe, in the hand of the angel. And he's told to take it. And again, it would need to be man-sized so that he can grab it. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said, take and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth, it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. I tasted, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. So he's told to eat the scroll. So again, this is imagery, right? So he takes that scroll and he eats it. He ingests the scroll and it tasted as sweet as honey on his lips as he was eating it. But as soon as it went into his stomach, it turned sour. Some of you are lactose intolerant. So think ice cream, <laughs> right? Man, it tastes so good getting in your mouth, right? Get in my belly. Oh, and then it jacks with you, right? This is a picture of that. It's, it's sweet. The word of God is so sweet, but it's said when it got into his stomach, it turned sour. So what is the significance of this? Well, first of all, Scripture interprets Scripture. This is not the first time this has happened. Ezekiel chapter 2, that I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me, pretty cool, on both sides of it were written the words of lament and mourning and woe. We saw that in chapter five. And he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat the scroll, then go and do what? Speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and gave me the scroll to eat. So in Ezekiel, Ezekiel, he was being called to be a prophet the people of Israel were in exile and he was called to be a prophet to go to the people living in exile. And, and he says, listen, take the scroll, ingest it. What is he saying? Take my words on you. I want you to take on my words, just drink them in, eat them in, and then I want you to go and speak them to my people. So a couple of thoughts. Number one, the word of God is always sweet tasting. If you're not reading it through the context of it being sweet tasting, you probably don't know Jesus. You probably don't understand that the Spirit wants to take those words and as you take them in, they should be tasting great and life-giving. Uh, Psalm 119, 103, your word is like honey on my lips. For those who follow Jesus, the word is nourishment. Uh, Psalm 34 and eight, it says, 
taste and see that the Lord is good. First Peter two, verses two and three, it says like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Here's the thing, once you taste that the Lord is good, you don't go back. Once you fully have embraced the word of God and ingested it, you know that it is sweet. You know that it's good. You know that it's right. Taste and see that the Lord is good. But the second is that it's bitter in John's stomach. Why? Because sometimes it speaks of judgment. Sometimes it puts a knot in our stomach because it's hard truth. Right? And know this, if you enjoy too much giving hard truth, something's wrong with you, okay? Because that means it's more about you than it is about Jesus. It should never be, be easy to blast somebody. So if you're great at telling stories about how you went off on somebody on the Wooden Forest Neighbors page, then you should probably rethink a lot of things, all right? So, so Ezekiel chapter three, verse 14, just a little further down in that Ezekiel passage, look at what it says. The spirit then lifted me up and took me away and I went in what? Bitterness and in the anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord on me. What does that mean? He ingested the word of God. It was sweet to the taste when he took it in, but then it became a knot in his stomach because he had to get it out. He had to go and share this message with the people. Romans 9, Paul talks about it. When he says, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why did he have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart? Because of his incredible love for the people. And he knew that the word of God in him, it was sweet to the taste, but it created this knot of, I have to get this out of me. And I have to get this out of me for you. It was his love that compelled him to share. And so think about that. The same word that was for salvation is the same word that some take as judgment, sweet and sour at the same time, beautiful and awful, peaceful and terrifying. It all depends on where you stand with Jesus. And then verse 11, this is where we land. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and king. What's he saying? He's saying, write it down, tell the world. Prophesy to the world about me. So remember, this was over 2,000 years ago that he had this vision. So because he said yes, because he wrote down this vision, we're sitting here today receiving the vision that Jesus gave to John to share with you and me. He is literally, uh, John is prophesying to you and me about languages and nations and kings and he's telling us our future. That's the beautiful picture of this. What is he saying? He's saying, tell the world, write it down, go and tell. It's a great commission, right? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Again, a compatible passage in Acts 1-8, right? 
He, he says this, he says, listen, I want you to go and make disciples. Acts 1.8, he says, the spirit is gonna fall on you and you will be my witnesses. And where? Jerusalem at home, Judea in your city, Samaria in your state, and, uh, and to the ends of the earth, your nation, your world. This is our commission that we receive the word and it's honey to our lips. It's sanctifying us. It's making us holy. It's making us more like him, but it turns our stomach because we can't keep it in us. It's gotta get out. And so it gets out as we go into the world. We are living in a world that we are called to go and tell. And we don't lord over people. We don't preach down to them. We don't, we don't uh, come in the name of anger. In fact, it is not your job to convince people into the kingdom. It's not your job to argue them into the kingdom. It's your job to, Ephesians 14, speak the truth in love. I, I don't know how many conversations I've had with people that we start talking, they start arguing. I said, do you believe the Bible's 100% true? Nope. Okay, wanna talk about something else? If we're not talking from the same platform, I don't, I don't feel compelled to argue them into the kingdom. It's not my job, it's the Spirit's job. It's my job to speak truth and there will be a day when something will happen in their, in, in their life and hopefully they will consider, huh, maybe I've missed something. And then in their pursuit, maybe they come back and go, hey, tell me a little bit more. And then we begin to talk from the same platform. See, if you're dead set on arguing people into the kingdom, that's why you're not seeing any fruit, right? Because number one, it's not your job in the first place. It's the Spirit's job. He draws people. You just ingest the word. It's sweet to the taste. It gives you this sense of urgency to go and tell. And then you just leave the results up to God. It seems too good to be true, right? It seems too simple to be true. See, the enemy, again, the angel of propaganda wants to make this more difficult for you than it needs to be. It's really not that hard. Receive from Jesus, just eat this word up. Let it change the way you think. Re remember, so let's get to the end here. Here are three things as we close. Number one, the word of God compels you to taste and see. The word of God compels you to taste and see. We've been given his word to consume for the purpose of transformation. It's for the purpose of transformation, not for the purpose of knowledge. If you're reading the Bible so you can gain knowledge, so you can level it at people, you've missed the point. The only reason we have been given his word is so that we can become like Jesus, period. And once you get it, you taste and see, you can't get enough of it. Again, Hebrews 4.12. I, I say this verse intentionally every week when we pray because I want the Bible to come alive for you. I want the Bible to come alive for you. The, the word of God is living and active. What do we mean by that? What does living and active mean? It means that it's alive. The DNA of Jesus is inside of us when we say yes to Jesus. And as we ingest this word, it changes us if we'll let it. It's the stuff that transformation is made of. Psalm 119, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word of God 
combats sin in your life. And then 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3, we crave pure spiritual milk so that by it we may grow up in our salvation. That we're no longer spiritual infants. We're no longer living off of yesterday's faith. We're growing up in our salvation. Number two, the word of God is both sweet and sour. Again, uh, I'm just gonna reference 2 Corinthians 2 one more time, that, that to some it's the aroma of life, to some it's the aroma of death. It, it's both and, and it's not up to you how people receive it. It's up to you to ingest it and that you are compelled to come and see so that number three, you're also compelled to go and tell. You receive it. It's in you. It's sweet, but then you've got that knot in your stomach. I have to go and tell. See, if you believe what Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you truly believe that, that the words of Jesus are literally the words of life, how could you not be compelled to go and tell? How could you sit back and not fully receive that? Compels you to go and tell. It's the essence of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, Acts 1. Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, come follow, come follow me and I'll make you what? Fishers of men. Remember we said this a couple of weeks ago. I think Tear Screen said it at the men's advance that when Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, that's a promise from him. So either if you're not fishing for men, either he's a liar or you're not following him. It's an imperative. We've been compelled to go and tell. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, it's this beautiful picture that Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So if you're in Jesus, you're no longer who you were. So again, receiving the truth of who you are, you're not who you were anymore. And that should free you up to live a new life, right? But he says, listen, you have been given this beautiful message now of reconciliation because of the, of the way that Jesus has changed you. Now you get to tell the world. You are compelled now to go and tell because he has transformed you. And you're now ministers of reconciliation. In fact, he says this, you're an ambassador of God. You're God's representative in this world, not God's secret agent. No, because you've been changed, because you've been made new, because you are armed now with this message of reconciliation, because you are ingesting daily in the secret place the word of God and it's becoming a part of you. It's part of your fabric where it just rolls off your tongue and conversation. Now you're an ambassador of God in the world. What does that mean? It means that God wants to use you to change the world. He wants to take your Eunice, your Ephesians 2.10 calling. He wants to train you in what it means to follow him. And so you take the word in. It's sweeter than honey, but it's also sour because it puts a knot in your stomach that I can't hold on to it anymore. I have to go and tell. It's what you were made for. And so Jesus, I pray that you would transform our thinking We thank you for Revelation 10 that it's still relevant to us today. That the vision that you gave John is, is right here for the taking for us. That we need to ingest your word in a way that transforms our life. 
and it just feels so good in the moment that we have these intimate moments with you where you press in and you give us these snapshots of who you are, but then you don't let us stay there. That you compel us to go and tell. Speak of this. Make me known. So I pray for the people of restoration. For some of you, when you think about Jesus, the aroma brings death because you're not ready to change your life. Just be honest about it. Be honest about where you are because, you know, the first step to transformation is knowing where you are and being honest about it. But maybe today you just need to say yes. I'm tired. I'm tired of trying to do this on my own and you would receive that Jesus is truly a better way. And you can begin this journey, a transformed journey first in you and then a transformation for all the people around you and just watch how God will use you to change the world.